Chapter 9 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzocchi. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 9. It was somewhere towards the end of autumn that Theodore Savage realized that the war had come to an end, so far, at least, as his immediate England was concerned. What was happening elsewhere, he and his immediate England had no means of knowing, and were long past caring to know. There was no definite ending but a leaving off, a slackening. The attacks, the burnings and panics, by degrees were fewer, and not only fewer, but less devastating, because carried out with smaller forces. There were days and nights without alarm, without smoke cloud or glow on the horizon, then yet longer intervals, and so on to complete cessation. By the time the nights had grown long and frosty, the war that was organized and alien had ended. There remained only the daily, personal, and barbaric form of war, wherein every man's hand was raised against his neighbor and enemy. That warfare ceased not and could not cease until the human herd had reduced itself to the point at which the bare earth could support it. It seemed to him later a wonder, almost a miracle, that he had come alive through the months of war and after. At times he stood amazed that any had lived in the waste of hunger and violence, of pestilence and rotting bodies, which for months was the world as he knew it. He was near death not once, nor a score of times, but daily, death from exhaustion or the envy of men who were starved and reckless as himself, the mockery of peace brought no plenty or hope of it, no sign of reconstruction or dawn of new order. Reconstruction and order were rank impossibilities so long as human creatures preyed on each other in a land swept bare and prowled after the manner of wolves. No revival of common life, no system was possible until earth once more brought forth her fruits. He judged, by the length of the nights, that it was somewhere around the middle of November, when the first snow came suddenly and thickly, the harbinger and onslaught of a fiercely hard winter that killed in their thousands the gaunt human beasts who tore at each other for the refuse and vermin that was food. In the all-pervading dearth and starvation, there was only one form of animal life that increased and flourished mightily, the rat overran empty buildings, found dreadful sustenance in street and field, and in turn was hunted, trapped, and fed on. With the coming of winter, the human remnant was perforce less vagrant and migratory, and Theodore, driven by weather to shelter, lived for weeks in what once had been a country town, a cluster of dead houses with here and there a silent factory. Only the buildings, the semblance of a township, remained, the befouled and neglected body whence the life of a community had fled. And he never knew what its living name had been or what was the manner of industry or commerce whereby it had supported its inhabitants. It lay in a flattish agricultural country, and a railway had run through its outskirts. The rusted metals stretched north and south, and the remnants of a station still existed. Platforms, charred buildings, and trucks and locomotives in sidings. Perhaps the charred buildings had been burned in a fury of drunken and insane destruction. Perhaps shivering destitution had set light to them for the sake of a few hours' warmth. The shell of the town, its brickwork and stone, 
was still practically intact. It was anarchy, pillage, and starvation, not the violence of an enemy, that had reduced it to a city of the dead. The means of supporting life were absent, but certain forms of what had once been luxury remained and were counted as nothing. At a corner of the main street stood a jeweler's premises, which time and again had been entered and ransacked. The dwelling house behind it contained not so much as a fragment of dried crust, but in the shop itself, rings, brooches, and pendants were still lying for any man to take, disordered, scattered, and trampled underfoot, because worthless to those who craved for bread. The only item of jeweler's stock that still had value to starving men was a watch, if it furnished a burning glass, a means of lighting a fire when other means were unavailable. Theodore lived through the winter as all his fellows lived, destructively, on the legacy and remnant of other men's savings and makings, scraping and grubbing in other men's ground, burning furniture and woodwork, the product of other men's labors, and taking no thought for the morrow. At the beginning of winter, some four or five score of human shadows, men and women, crept about the dead streets and the fields beyond them in their daily quest for the means to keep life in their bodies. But as the weeks drew on and the winter hardened, starvation and the sickness born of starvation reduced their numbers by a half. Those lived best who were most skillful at the trapping of vermin, and they had long been existing on little but rat flesh when some hunters of rats, on the track of their prey, discovered a treasure beyond price, a godsend, in the shape of sacks of grain in the cellar of an empty brewery. The discovery meant more than a supply of food and the staving off of death by starvation. With the possession of resources that, with care, might last for weeks, there came into being a common interest, the fellowship that makes a social system. After the first wild struggle, the rush to fill their hands and cram their gnawing stomachs, the shadows and skeletons of men controlled their instincts and took counsel. The fact that their stomachs were full and their cravings satisfied gave back to them the power of construction, of forethought and restraint. They ceased to be instinctively inimical and wholly animal and took common measures for the preservation and rationing of their heaven-sent windfall. They advised, consulted, heard opinion and gave it, were reasonable, counted their numbers in relation to the size of their hoard, and in the end decided by common consent on the amount of the daily portion which was to be allotted to each in return for his share in the duty of guarding it, against the cravings of their own hunger, as well as against the inroads of rats and mice. With food, with property, they were human again, capable of plans for the morrow, of concerted and intelligent action. The enmity they had hitherto felt against each other was suddenly transferred to the stranger, the foreigner, who might force his way in and acquire a share in their treasure. Hence they took precautions against the arrival of the stranger, kept watch and ward on the outskirts of the town, and drove away the chance newcomer, so that the knowledge of their good fortune should not spread. With duties shared, the dead sense of comradeship revived. They began to recognize and greet each other as they came for their daily portion, and if some were restrained only by the common watchfulness, from appropriating more than their share of the common stock, there were others in whom stirred the sense of honor. For a week or more, they lived under the beginnings of a social system, which was rendered possible by their certainty of a daily mess. And then came what, perhaps, was inevitable. 
discovery of pilfering from the store that gave life to them all. The pilferers, detected by the night guard, fled on the instant, well knowing that their sin against the very existence of the little community was a sin beyond hope of forgiveness. They eluded pursuit in the darkness, and by morning had vanished from the neighborhood. For the time only, since they took with them the knowledge of the hoarded grain they had forfeited, a knowledge which was power and a weapon to themselves, a danger to those they had fled from. Two days later, after nightfall, a skeleton rabble, armed with knives, clubs, and stones, was led into the town by the renegades, and there was fought out a fierce elementary battle, a struggle of starved men for the prize of life itself. From the first, the case of the defenders was hopeless. Outnumbered and taken by surprise, they were beaten in detail, overwhelmed, and in less than five minutes, the survivors were flying for their lives, the darkness their only hope of safety. Theodore Savage was of the remnant who owed their lives to darkness and the speed with which they fled. As he neared the outskirts of the town and slackened, exhausted to draw breath, he heard the patter of running steps behind him and for a moment believed himself pursued, till a passing burst of moonlight showed the runner as a woman, like himself, seeking safety in flight. A young woman with a sobbing open mouth who clutched at his arm and besought him not to leave her to be killed, to save her, to get her away. He knew her by sight, as he knew all the members of the destitute little community, a girl with a face once plump, now hollowed, whom he had seen daily when she came, in stupid wretchedness, to hold out her bowl for her share of the common ration. One of a squalid company of three or four women who herded together and whose habit of instinctive fellowship was broken by the sudden onslaught which had driven them apart in flight. I don't know where they've all gone, she wailed. Don't leave me, for God's sake. Don't leave me. Oh, whatever shall I do? I don't know where to go, for God's sake. He would gladly have been rid of her, lamenting helplessness, but she clung to him in a panic that would not be gainsaid, as fearful almost of the lonely dark ahead as of the bloody brawl she had fled from. Hold your tongue, he ordered as he pulled her along. Don't make that noise or they'll hear us, and keep close to me, keep in the shadow. She obeyed and stilled her sobbing to gasps and whimpers, holding tightly to his arm while he hurried her through by streets to the open country. He knew no more than she where they were going when they left the silent outskirts of the town behind them and, pressing against each other for warmth, bent their heads to a January wind. End of chapter 9. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.